Well, later, after church, I'll leave today. Yeah, that's how that goes. Let's look to the Word of God before I get myself into any more trouble. We're in the last few weeks of this exploration all, all fall, going back to Labor Day weekend. We started looking at the life of Abraham, the promises that God made to Abraham and to his heirs. Their stories are long and complicated. Genesis, many of you know, you know, as the first book in the Bible, it's also one of the longest books in the Bible. It's just a very, very long, complicated story. But I, I hope that if you've been around for the ride this fall, uh, that these, these stories have yielded some fruit for you. Uh, too often, I think modern Christians have the habit of, of seeing their faith only through the lens of an individualized relationship with Jesus. But when that's the only way that we see our faith, we miss out on the bigger picture of our place as heirs in the great heritage of God's faithfulness to all his people throughout the ages. We are but one generation. Do you remember that? We are but one generation of a legacy that is still unfolding throughout eternity. And I think it's good for us to remind ourselves of that from time to time. Uh, But for that same reason, because we are just one generation of a story that just keeps on going on, the story of God's work to redeem humanity, it's still being told. Uh, For precisely that reason, it's it's kind of hard to find a good stopping place in these stories. Uh, it's kind of hard to find a time to move on to another topic. Eventually here, I'm going to have to preach a Christmas sermon, right? Um, we followed the life of Abraham. Uh, and then uh, we followed the life of his son Isaac. And now we're in the midst of Jacob's life stories. Uh, but the, the stories of Abraham's heirs continue to be told today. And you, of course, know that because we've said it again, again and again, we who are in Christ Jesus, according to the Bible, are the heirs of the promises that God made to Abraham. And so each time in these stories, I found each time we reach a point that feels like an ending. You know what I mean? Feels like that, ah, roll credits. That's clearly the ending. Each time we reach a point like that, Something else happens, and the the story just keeps going on. Uh, For me, we reached one of those false ending points last week. Uh, It was at the very end of Genesis chapter 33. Let me remind you kind of where we left our hero at, at that point, at the end of Genesis chapter 33. At that point, Jacob had returned to his homeland. He had a huge family. He had made his fortune. He had 12 sons. He had one daughter. Poor girl. (laughs) Against all odds, Jacob and his twin brother Esau actually reconciled. Uh, They made peace with one another. Jacob became the first member of his family to actually own the land that he lived on, which isn't just like a cool thing for them. That's actually a pretty significant fulfillment of one of the promises of God, right? He said, this land will be yours. In the closing lines of chapter 33, it describes Jacob building a place of worship and he's dedicating it. He calls it, this is for the God of Israel, which is his new name. He's saying he's taking ownership of his faith and his role as a patriarch in his family's faith. Uh, And it just, to me, if it was a book, uh, the next page would just simply read, and they all lived happily ever after. Doesn't it feel like one of those, like, ah, All of the loose ends have been resolved, and they all lived happily ever after. But 
That's not what the next page says. The next page is Genesis chapter 34. We're not going to read Genesis chapter 34, but I can tell you this just briefly. They did not live happily ever after. Uh, In Genesis chapter 34, we find out that Jacob's one daughter became the victim of a sexual assault. And that two of her brothers, uh, Simeon and Levi, they tried to avenge her by killing a bunch of men in the village that uh, sheltered her attacker. And so that whole series of events puts Jacob and his family at odds once again with their neighbors. And so the family picks up once again and they move once more. This time they're going to move back to Bethel, which you might recall is the place where Jacob had had his dream about the stairway to heaven all those years before. Insert your Led Zeppelin jokes right here. Okay. Now, I hadn't mentioned it and you know, we haven't read every word and every line of all of these stories. I hadn't mentioned it earlier. But it's worth pointing out in everything that we've read since Jacob returned home, right? Since Jacob came back home and, and reconciled with Esau and, and kind of the fa- got back to the family plot of land, uh, one character has been conspicuously absent. I don't know if you've picked up on it yet, but we haven't heard anything about Jacob's mother, Rebecca. Do you remember that when Jacob left his family to go out and make his fortune and find a wife, uh, he was actually fleeing Esau who wanted to kill him. And Jacob and his mother, Rebekah, had a very special relationship. And Rebekah said, you go away and you don't come back until I send word that it's safe to come back. But if you've been following the story, Rebekah never sent that word. That's not why Jacob came back when he came back. And now that he is back, The Bible doesn't mention her at all. Apparently, Rebecca had passed away while Jacob was off in another land working for Laban and starting his family. He he lost his mom and he wasn't there to say goodbye to her. There was, however, another kind of mother figure in Jacob's life. Uh, Rebecca's own childhood nurse was a woman by the name of Deborah. We haven't discussed her at all, but the Bible references her a handful of occasions. Uh, when Rebecca be, you know, was married into this family, it's a story that we read together several weeks ago, uh, her dowry included her, her childhood nurse, Deborah. And Deborah stayed with her and no doubt had a role in raising her twin boys as well. Deborah is kind of the, uh, the grandmother, uh, the grandmother honorary grandmother to the family. She was beloved and she lived at this point in the story, she actually lived with Jacob and, and his whole crew uh, in her old age. But in Genesis chapter 35, we read that Deborah too passes away. It says that Jacob and his family buried her under a large oak tree that became known for generations after that. It was called the Oak of Weeping. The family wept and mourned and grieved as they said goodbye to this this grandma-like woman that had helped raise them all. It wasn't too much after that 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 Jacob finally got some good news. It's about time for some good news, isn't it? And the good news was this. Rachel was pregnant. Rachel was pregnant. Now, let's bear in mind that Jacob already has 12 children. uh, And they're grown. They're grown. And all of a sudden, Rachel's like, guess what? (laughs) This is one of those, oh, babies. 
We have a few, oh, babies at HRCC, don't we? Uh, this is one of those babies that came much after the other children. And Jacob said, wow, that's uh, great. <laughs> but Rachel had always, always, always wanted another son. And so she and Jacob were thrilled about this surprise news. And so they went and they registered at Target and they got all the cribs and all the stuff that they had put on garagesale.com prior to that because they thought they were done, but now they aren't done. They have another baby coming. And so they get ready to receive that new baby. Their excitement though would soon turn to sorrow. Rachel went into labor unexpectedly when she was on another journey with the family and she died in childbirth. Uh, she named the son, the boy that was born, who survived. She named him uh, son of my sorrow. In their language, that was Ben-Omi. Jacob, who I think was very particular about names. <laughs> Jacob said, I don't want to call him son of my sorrow. He said, I I'm going to name him Benjamin, which means son of my right hand. It's a son of blessing. Uh, but at the same time, Jacob buried his wife. And not in the home property, not in the home burial plot. He buried her along the roadway, just outside of a village they happened to be traveling by. A village that many, many hundreds of years later would come to be known as Bethlehem. And the hits didn't stop there. The hits just kept on coming for Jacob. He made it home in just enough time to say his final goodbyes to his father, Isaac. Closing lines of Genesis chapter 35 tell us that Brother Esau even came back into town for the funeral. Now, there's no way for us to know for sure the exact timeline of all of the events that I laid out. Did that take place over the course of you know, a few months, maybe a year, maybe a couple of years? Uh, but it's relatively compact because they're all referenced over the course of less than two chapters in the book of Genesis. And I want you to think about the emotional impact that a season like that would have had on Jacob. First, he found out that his mother died while he was away from home and he wasn't able to say goodbye to her. Then he found out that his own daughter had been assaulted. Two of his sons got caught up in kind of the blood feud that resulted from that. The grandmotherly woman who helped raise him and lived as a member of his household passed away. His beloved wife, the one that he had labored for 14 years for, just for the right to marry her. She died in childbirth and she left him with a baby boy to raise. And then finally his dad, with whom can we acknowledge? Jacob always had a complicated relationship with his dad, didn't he? Complicated relationship. But I think a lot of people in this room know that when loved ones, even when the relationship is complicated, if we're being polite, when they pass, that hurts. That hurts. And that's what happened to Jacob. Who among us hasn't gone through a season like that? I don't think there's anybody here who couldn't at some level say, I feel you, Jacob. A season where grief and loss and pain and disappointment just keep on coming again and again and again in wave after wave after wave. How much can I handle, God? How much can I handle? I'll bet when that happened to you, you were tempted to wonder where God was in the midst of that grief. I'll bet there were moments when Jacob was tempted to wonder the exact same thing. But the Bible says that quite unexpectedly, 
right in the midst of all of this grief, God showed up in Jacob's life. He showed up and he began to speak to Jacob anew and afresh, right in the middle of this series of losses, right in the middle. We read these words, Genesis chapter 35, verse nine. Now that Jacob had returned from Paddan Aram, God appeared to him again at Bethel. God blessed him saying, your name is Jacob, but you will not be called Jacob any longer. From now on, your name will be Israel. So God renamed him Israel. Then God said, I am El Shaddai, God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. You will become a great nation, even many nations. Kings will be among your descendants. And I will give you the land I once gave to Abraham and Isaac. Yes, I will give it to you and your descendants after you. That's what God said. In the midst of Jacob's grief, if you go back and read the entire two chapters that I just laid out, and specifically Genesis chapter 35, it kind of goes, you know, death, death, God shows up, death, death. It's right in the middle. Now, by now, I trust that most of you don't need me to tell you that what we just read, the words that we just read, what God said to Jacob, this is essentially a reaffirmation of the original covenant promises that God had made to Jacob's grandfather, Abraham. When we say heirs of the promise, these are the promises that we're talking about. There's nothing really new in the text that I just read to you. We've heard all of this before, but God showed up and he said it anyhow. There's no new information. Jacob didn't learn anything new, but God showed up and he said it anyhow. In the midst of Jacob's deepest season of personal grief and loss, God showed up to give Jacob a word. And it wasn't a new word. It was an old word. It was just a reiteration of the things that God had been saying since day one. And I don't think that it's a coincidence that God chose precisely this moment to do it. The Bible says, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted. Jesus himself announced his ministry by saying, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. God has a weird habit of becoming conspicuously present to us in times of great sadness. And the words that God spoke to Jacob that night, they were deeply, deeply personal. And yet there's lessons in them for all of us. The first one is this. In times of grief, God can remind us who we are. He can remind us who we are. My grandma, my mom's mom, Edna May, as she became elderly, she struggled with dementia. And in her later years, one of the um, one of the common problems that she would have would be recognizing people. She was sure that she knew you, but she couldn't quite place you. At first, this referred to friends and people, you know, in the outer circles of her life. But eventually, as the dementia progressed, it included those of us that were in her family and close to her. I know that dementia has many different faces and looks different ways in different people. But for my grandma, dementia just made her sweeter and sweeter and sweeter. <laughs> and she just didn't know who you were. 
And so she was constantly asking us, now remind me, I'm, I'm your grandson. I'm, you know, this is, this is who I am. One day she was talking to my wife, Sue, and she was holding Sue's hand and shaking it and saying, dear, I love you so much. And she said, I, you know, I, I can't, I know that I know you, but I can't remember where. And before Sue could answer her, grandma said, I remember we went to grade school together. <laughs> That, um, A, I need to quickly tell you that's not accurate. Um, that did not happen. Um, and I, I don't believe that was a blessing to my wife that day. But grandma would ask again and again and again for the rest of the days of her life uh, with a big sweet smile on her face most of the time. Most of the time. Most of the time. She would say, tell me who I am to you. Tell me who I am to you. When I preached her funeral, we used those as the theme words. Dear Lord, tell me who I am to you. There's comfort in being reminded who I am to you. God broke through to Jacob amid his grief to remind him who he was. The name change had already taken place. We read it a chapter earlier, but here God is, is choosing to repeat it. Most people still call Jacob, Jacob. As I preach the remaining sermons, I'm going to still call Jacob, Jacob. As you read the rest of the book of Genesis, it typically calls Jacob, Jacob. But Israel was what God called him. Israel was the marker of who he was in God's eyes. Church, do you know who you are? in God's eyes. If God could give you a new name today to describe you, what name would it be? Would it be screw up? Loser? Rebel? Would it be addict? Would he call you the problem child? Would he call you a failure? Would he call you reject? Disappointment? Think again. The miracle of the gospel is that when you and I submit our lives to Jesus, we lose the record of our sinfulness and we gain the right to be known simply by the fact that we belong to him. You're a good, good father because that's who you are. I'm loved by you. That's who I am. That's who I am. Nothing that I've done contributes to who I am in God's eyes. The only thing that matters in God's eyes is that I'm loved by him. What name would God give you today? He'd call you beloved. Beloved. But Lord, I am that screw up. No, you're my beloved. But Lord, I am that addict. No, you're my beloved. But Lord, I am that disappointment, that failure. No, you're my beloved. So I'll ask the question again, do you know, I mean, do you really know who you are in God's eyes? Years later, the prophet Isaiah would reflect on this name change from Jacob to Israel. And he wrote this, but now, O Jacob, listen to the Lord who created you. 
O Israel, the one who formed you said, do not be afraid for I have ransomed you. I have called you by name, you are mine. When you go through deep waters, I will be with you. When you go through rivers of difficulty, you will not drown. When you walk through the fire of oppression, you will not be burned up. The flames will not consume you for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel. I am your savior. You, listen to this, are precious to me. You are honored and I love you. Who are you to God? It's not all God had to say to Jacob, though. Just after reminding Jacob of his new name, the name Israel, God gives Jacob a specific title by which God himself can be known. He says to him, I am El Shaddai. The New Living Translation that I've been teaching from these past several weeks does us the favor of, of translating that name right away. I am El Shaddai, God Almighty. Do you know that in times of grief, God can reveal who he is? He can show us who we are, but he also can reveal who he is. And in this case, God is reminding Jacob of his unsurpassed strength and ability. He's saying, I am El Shaddai. That means I am powerful enough to accomplish everything I have promised. I will do it, is what God says. He's reminding Jacob that the promises aren't just mere words. He's saying, I have the ability follow through on what I've said. God has a habit of revealing himself to his children most clearly, I think, during times of suffering and grief. You might think that your saddest point will be the time when God seems the most distant, but it's often exactly the other way. It's often in our weakness and our vulnerability that we can see El Shaddai most clearly. You know why? Because I wouldn't have known God was my healer if I hadn't have been sick. I wouldn't have known God is provider if I hadn't been poor. I wouldn't have known God's strength if I hadn't been weak. I wouldn't have known God's wisdom if I hadn't have been so foolish. I wouldn't have known God's joy if I hadn't been awash in grief. Do you remember that I mentioned that when Jacob's wife, Rachel, died. She was buried just outside a village that one day later and generations later would become to known as, as Bethlehem. You guys know Bethlehem. We hear Bethlehem, and especially at this time of year, immediately we think of, oh, well, that's where the baby Jesus was born. That's where Rachel was buried. About a thousand years after Rachel was buried, the prophet Jeremiah, recalling her tragic passing, wrote these words. Uh, they won't be on the screen, but if you want to scribble this down, it was in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 15. He wrote, a cry is heard in Ramah, deep anguish and bitter weeping. Rachel weeps for her children, refusing to be comforted for her children are gone. Jeremiah was using Rachel's story to speak metaphorically about the time when, when Babylonians would sweep through that era, area and they would take young Hebrew captives away to live in exile. That's what Jeremiah had to say about that. And then about 600 years after the prophet Jeremiah wrote that, the apostle Matthew, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right? The apostle Matthew, he would write about the day that King Herod sent his troops through that very town. 
and murdered all the baby boys under two years of age. And when Matthew wrote about the day when that happened, he appropriated Jeremiah's words to describe the horror of that day. He wrote once again, Rachel weeps for her children, refusing to be comforted, for they are dead. Do you remember what was going on in Bethlehem then when when Herod sent the troops and the, the babies were killed? That was the birth of Jesus. For many of us, Christmas is a time of of joy and excitement, a time of anticipation, a good cheer, as we sometimes say. But for most of the people that were actually alive in the time and the place where Jesus was born, it was anything but that. It was a season of grief and sorrow, of fear and pain and loss. And then God showed up and he revealed himself. The word became flesh and dwelt among them in the midst of their grief, in the midst of their sorrow, in the midst of their pain, in the midst of their loss. God can reveal himself in precisely those times. And that's a good thing. Because without God, grief and suffering quickly feel to us like a dead end. I I think in in layman's terms, that's, that's kind of the nature of depression, isn't it? It's that sense that it's all over and there's nowhere to go from here. But in times of grief, God can point us forward. When God spoke to Jacob in his season of grief, he reaffirmed the promises of the covenant, but he emphasized the fact that the promises were not just for Jacob. He said, these are for you and for your descendants after you. In other words, God was telling Jacob, I know this might feel like the end, but I'm not done working in your life yet. There are blessings that I have yet to pour over you, my son. And long after you have been called to your eternal home, I'll still be blessing the heirs of the promises. I think there's a profound peace that can be found in recognizing that even even when I am bent down in grief, the mission of God is still moving forward. The mission of God is still moving forward. Kat, when she prayed this morning, mentioned back pain. That was not a coincidence. Kat is suffering from some back pain. She has a bulging disc. I also have a bulging disc. If you've found me to be a little out of sorts over the last couple weeks, it's because I've got some really nice drugs. (laughs) They're not quite nice enough, and so I've got a procedure coming up in a couple of weeks here that's supposed to do me some good. I was initially offended when I was diagnosed with a bulging disc because I feel like that's a problem that is for old men. But then my 20-something colleague have the same diagnosis. And so she and I are just kind of doing this around the office. But I'm the boss, so I make her lift everything. That's not true, usually. I went this week um, to visit a a pain management doctor. And uh, I was in the waiting room. It was nobody that I'd ever seen before Um, sitting, sitting in the waiting room waiting for him to, not in the waiting room, in the, in the treatment room, waiting for him to come in. 
and take a look at me. And he walked in and like, I wonder if he just learned to shave that week. I mean, he, he couldn't have been older than 14. I would have called him Doogie Hauser, but I think he's too young to get the reference. I'm like, oh man, he's been out of medical school a full 25 minutes at this point. But it turned out he was really good. I actually liked him a lot. He was very helpful. I had had an MRI done and he had the film. So he pulls him up on his computer screen and he actually is showing me my spine and he's showing me exactly where the problem is and where the problem isn't. And he's saying, here's the bulge. Here's, you know, here's what this is doing and this is what it should look like. And this is what it shouldn't look like. He said, but Dan, I want you to know I'm very encouraged. Uh, the bulge should resolve. We're gonna give you pain medicine. Uh, we're gonna you know, do the things we need to do. You're gonna do some physical therapy. I fully expect that this is gonna resolve. And I said, well, why are you so confident? He said, well, let me show you why I'm so confident. You have you know, a disc between every vertebrae. And he said, look at this. These discs, these other discs that are adjacent to the problem, he said, they're all perfect. They're all exactly where they need to be. They look exactly the way they should look. And then he says, now here, lower in your spine, you do have some degeneration in those discs. Those do not look as good. And I'm thinking, and then he says, but I'm not too concerned about it because it's very typical of a man your age. A man my age. So I went home. I thought my back hurt, but now my feelings hurt. Do you have pain management for that? But I, I started doing the math. And it wasn't encouraging. When my dad, who, by the way, was always old. Always old. Every day that I looked at him, he, he was old, right? When he was my age, I was already driving a car. And what's weird about that is I can remember learning to drive. I can remember him taking me out and teaching me to drive. And I'm telling you, he was really, really old. <laughs> but that's how old I am now. And then my mind kind of just went on this journey that was neither healthful nor helpful. But I was thinking about Pastor West, my, my predecessor here. My first job in church ministry was when Pastor West hired me just out of college to play the piano and lead the worship services right here in this church. Dave and Janet, you guys were here then. Cindy, you were here then. Brian, you were here then. Actually, this is kind of funny. I remember this vividly, Brian. I don't know if you'll remember. The very first Sunday I led worship for you guys, my microphone crapped out. And then here I am today, ready to tell that story, and my microphone crapped out. Again, you know, the more things change, the more they stay the same, right? Uh, but Brian was the sound man back then. Some of you guys remember that. Here's why I'm telling you that story. When, when Pastor West, who I think you'll agree with me, was old. I mean, he certainly seemed that way to me. When he hired me to come work here, he was the age I am now. Yeah, <laughs> it's only going to get worse, Kel says. I know you were shooting for encouragement there, but it didn't land, buddy. 
It didn't land. Beats Look, the alternative. Yeah, beats the alternative. Great. I got all the advice. With friends like these, right? Look, here's why I'm bringing this up. I am doing my best to not have a midlife crisis right here in front of you all on the stage, right? I am absolutely doing my best. Carmen's in the back row laughing. It's going to happen to him. It's going to happen to him. Because it's not about you, okay? I'm just saying. Your time's coming, dude. I'm not trying to have a midlife crisis in front of you, but on the contrary, think of all the increase to the kingdom of God that has taken place over that time. Think of all the things that the Lord has accomplished in these periods of time that seem so short to us. Each time we say, wow, I can't believe how quickly Christmas came this year. Each time we say, wow, I can't believe how big your kids have grown. Or, wow, I can't believe how much I've lost. Each time we say something like that, think about how much, how many more heirs have been born into the kingdom of God during that time. Folks, time is moving along more quickly than we realize. Imagine how many have heard the gospel for the very first time. Imagine how many have been miraculously healed by the power of God. Imagine how many have been sent forth in power to declare the gospel. How many have been set free from the chains of sin and addiction. How many have been baptized into the power of the Holy Spirit. And imagine how much closer we've gotten to the coming of Christ our King. We can't assume that the time that remains will be sufficient for us to just rest and procrastinate. Because legacies are defined in just a day. Years go by in the blink of an eye. The grayer your hair is in this room, the more you understand that fact. Lifetimes pass with but a moment's notice. And sometimes it's during seasons of grief and loss that I think we see that most clearly. We see the urgency and the necessity of looking forward to what yet lies beyond our reach because the time is growing short, church. The Lord's gentle reminder to Jacob is equally valid for us. The treasures of our inheritance aren't merely our own. They're for us and for our descendants too. They are claimed by future generations. It's not only in our grief, but sometimes it's through our grief that the mission of God proceeds. And no matter what pain or sorrow I might feel today, the work of God is always moving me closer and closer and closer and closer to that place where the word of God says he will wipe every tear from our eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain because the old order of things has passed away. And I believe that's why we can so confidently agree with the psalmist who said weeping may last through the night, but joy comes in the morning. Weeping may last for the night, but God shows up and joy comes in the morning. Would you bow your heads? Father, I'm compelled to believe that there are those in this room who hear Jacob's story and say, yep, sounds about right. The hits just keep on coming. 
we're no strangers to grief and to sorrow. And even for those of us that are living our best lives this, this December, we know that it's not always gonna be this way. <coughs> we know that seasons of grief and sorrow have a way of finding us this side of heaven. We thank you, Lord, that you also have a way of finding us this side of heaven. We thank you, Lord, that we do not grieve as those who are without hope, but we who are in Christ Jesus grieve and mourn and wail, knowing that we have been called to an eternal destiny, that we are playing a role, we are playing a part, we are playing a note in the symphony that is the salvation song of our God. And that it's even in our grief and even in our sadness and even in our loss that Jesus our Savior shows up in our lives and reminds us who we are. God, I pray for my brothers and sisters in this room. Would you speak your word into their lives? Would you remind them who they are? Would you cancel the words, the lies of the enemy who tells us all of these other things? Would you enable us to hear, identify, and recognize your voice when you tell us who we are? Whose report are we going to believe? And the people of God said, we will believe the report of the Lord. We will believe the report of the Lord. And God, even when I feel more like the loser, more like the forgotten one, more like the failure, even then I will choose to trust the word of the Lord. Would you show up and remind us not only of who we are, but of who you are? That you are El Shaddai, the Almighty One. The God of all power and all strength and ability. The one who sets the foundations of time and space and yet sees into our hearts. Lord, point us forward. Lift our eyes, even as you hem us in, even as you wrap us with your arms, even as you envelop us with your protective and healing presence, even so, Lord, the psalmist says, you are our glory, you are the lifter of our heads. Would you lift our heads today that we might look forward once again? Would you raise our gaze, Lord, that we would see that there is a mission that lies yet in front of us? Would you break our hearts for the things that break yours? Would you call us into harvest fields? Would you anoint us with power from on high to do the work that you have left for us to do? Because God, we are a Maranatha people, even as we look in this holiday season to the stories that tell us about the first time that Jesus 
came. Lord, we are the generation who looks forward to the second time he will come. He is coming again. Will he find us busy about his work when he does? I thank you this morning, Father, that when I have knelt down and wept, when I've been overcome with grief, when I have been bent over by the weight of the problems of this life, your word never once has been, Dan, get over yourself. You have never once told me to just suck it up and move on. My buddies on the football field would say, rub some dirt in it. Keep moving. But you're a good, good father. It's who you are. That's not your word. Lord, you have met me. You have met me in the midst of my sadness and my pain and my sorrow and my grief. But for my brothers and sisters today, I know that you have met them because I've seen it with my own eyes. I've seen it with my own eyes. But God, I know there's some in here today who are looking for you. They're, searching, they're saying, yeah, this is, this is my season of pain and grief. Where's God? Where's God now? Lord, would you hear the cry of their hearts today? Would you reach down into their lives? Just as you found Jacob once again out in the wilderness, would you find them today? Lord, we give you all the honor and all the glory. Thank you. Thank you. I'm going to take just a moment in silence. We'll conclude in a moment, but I just want to stop and pause. You won't have too many times in the month of December to stop and be still. This is going to be one of them. And take just a moment for you to listen to the Lord's voice. Hallelujah. Beloved of God. You are his delight. You are the one in whom he takes joy. As a father's heart bursts with pride, at the birth of a new baby. So too your heavenly father's heart bursts with pride at your spiritual birth. He ransomed your life. 
nothing in the created universe was more important to him than you. Because of the work of Christ Jesus, you who call him Savior have become the beloved of God. And you are his greatest delight. Thank you, Father, for your word. May it be received as you have spoken it. In the name of Jesus, we pray. And everybody says, Amen. 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 Church, go. Don't go far. I'd love to see you back tonight at 6 for our Christmas party. If you could bring a plate of Christmas cookies, we'd have no trouble eating them for you. Have a good afternoon.